Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Forensic Psychology is a podcast that provides an illuminating window into the workings of the criminal mind. Now, here's your host, Dr. Carlos. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, Eric. Good to be here. Yes, this is episode three, and today we're going over uh, the visit of the world of Mark Hoffman. And this is fascinating because he is an American counterfeiter, forger, and convicted murderer. And I know as we talked just before the show, you suspect or think that he's a psychopath. We're going to be taking a look at that. Uh, his schemes began to unravel. We're going to be looking at that. He also planted bombs. So he's highly intelligent, it seems like. Um, I'm going to give you a little background, folks, as well. Again, folks, if you like this show, if you want to support us, make sure you hit that like. Make Put down comments if you have any questions. I know some of you have asked questions already at one of our first shows, and we appreciate that. Um, tell us if you want us to cover certain things in certain ways, if you like more details. If not, whatever it is or different topics you want us to hit. So Mark Hoffman was born in 1954. He was born in Salt Lake. He was raised uh, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He was a below-average high school student, but he had hobbies, including magic, electronics, chemistry, uh, coin collecting, and whatnot. Hoffman and his friends were said to have made bombs for fun on the outskirts of Murray, Utah. An interesting thing. According to Hoffman, while still a teenage coin collector, he forged a rare mint mark on a dime and was told by an organization of coin collectors that it was genuine. And this seems to be kind of glossing over <laughs> that story, isn't it, Eric? Yes, yes. He actually uh, sent a coin that he had forged, he had mutilated with some chemicals, sent to the U.S. Treasury, and was, was sent a letter back from the Treasury Department saying, this is authentic. And at 14 years old, he knew he could beat them, he could beat anybody. And that's it was just added to his life of, of crime. Now, I know yeah, we don't have as much information. Like, unfortunately, we never really did with some of these characters. But um, he was disappointed. He was disillusioned and lost his faith in the LDS church right around the age of 14. I guess they claim he, he became an atheist at that point, which has got nothing to do with anything. Um, I just bring it up. But the interesting part of it is we saw the forgery. And I'm looking at conduct disorder here, but it's only one piece of the puzzle there. Is that too quick of a jump, or do you think we can actually get there? Well, well, okay, so he lost faith at 14, uh, which, you know, for the in, in the LDS church, and being raised LDS, I understand how that all works. Uh, but he still went on a mission at, 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 uh, at 19. He went on a mission for the church. So he went overseas. And while he was overseas on his mission, uh, allegedly to, to profess the gospel, uh, he was collecting documents, anything he could find that was going to maybe attack the church. Okay. 
And uh-huh. so he looked for those kind of documents and he collected them and he saved them during his mission. So then after his mission, of course, he was able to use some of those documents and forge them and so on um, that had added to his, his sense of cr- uh, criminality. But he always had this persona that he was a good guy, uh, that he fit in, that he was one, one of the group. When in reality, he was just a predator and he was just, he was preparing himself all along this way he prepared himself. Even during those years and when he got back from his mission, he started practicing on this old polygraph machine or something similar to a polygraph. So he could train himself to beat the polygraph. Why I've always said, that? why would he do that? Because he knew if he was ever brought in for uh, an examination, he could always say, I could take the polygraph. I'll show you that I'm innocent because most people cannot beat the polygraph. But I've always said, there are some people who can beat the polygraph and people who are very psychopathic, not necessarily true psychopath, but very psychopathic can do this because they learn how to control their galvanic skin response and, you know, on the skin. So there's no, no salt that's secreted. He doesn't become nervous. And so he trained himself not to become nervous during the polygraph. And, and so because of the result of that, when he was examined on the polygraph, he, got, he scored the highest score possible of, of being honest. And, and, and yet he was completely guilty. And, and that gave him, the psychology here is that gave him a sense of power. It gave him a sense of, look, look I'm somebody. Because when he was a kid, um, even as a child, um, he felt like he didn't belong anywhere. He, he had a very difficult childhood with his father um, and he didn't connect with his father. His father was extremely authoritarian. He wanted to be somebody. And, and so even at, when he was like eight, nine years old, he learned how to con his friends. Like, for example, they, they once went on a uh, uh, scavenger hunt. They'd heard that there was some lost treasure out in the woods somewhere. And so they went to this location for four of his friends and he was there. And, and, uh, but he had gone out in advance and buried a bottle of coins, an old bottle of coins. Okay. So then he found them and said, yes, I found the treasure. There is treasure out here, you know? And, and so the boys believed him and he realized that people could be conned at the you know, very young age. And that settled in his mind. So as he got older, he started, and he was very, very bright. He was a poor achiever in school because he was bored with school. He had no interest in school, but he was very intelligent. He still is very intelligent um, and a real manipulator. So, uh, that's when he started experimenting with his chemistry, uh, with his physics and so on, as he started doing things with coins and started testing out uh, the waters when it, when it came to forging documents um, and uh, really became very, very good at it. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating. And I guess you can check off one already for psychopathy there, manipulation, cunning. We already oh, yes. have that. Yeah. You know what? This is a question sometimes I get every so often. Um, when I get your thoughts, he was a middle child, I believe. He was a second of three children. I think he was the only boy. Uh, do we know anything in regards to, to research in regards to only uh, firstborns, uh, middle children, uh, the youngest? Anything at all in relations to these type of criminals or no? Well, I, not so much the, the birth order, although being an only child can, may, might put you at risk. Uh, but it's the relationship or the, the attachment or the lack of attachment a child has to his parent. And in this case, you had a very authoritarian father uh, where Hoffman couldn't feel attached to him and, and didn't. And so I, I suspect he also had uh, somewhat of a very weak relationship with, with his mother. 
And so he learned to pretend that he was happy, learned to, learned to pretend that he cared about people. And in the end, I mean, he, he really became emotionally disassociated with everybody. Uh, however, that did not stop him from looking normal. And so years later, after he did his mission, uh, he got married, he had four children. But if you watch him closely, um, if, you, if you look at his life, when he went to prison like many years later, he never thought about his children. It, it, it didn't grieve him that he was walking away from his kids or his wife, for that matter. Um, but what, what mattered to him was that he, was he felt powerful, that he was somebody, that he beat the FBI at their own game. He beat the Department of Treasury. You know, he beat the Mormon church. Uh, he could beat any church. He happened to be Mormon. He could have been Catholic. Uh, whatever church he was a part of, he would have dug up documents because he was good. In fact, one of his business associates said this about him. He said, the word I can think, the word I have about him is he's fantastic. Not that I like wow. him, but he was fantastic because no one, and, and law enforcement will tell you this, nobody had ever done anything like that before to that level of expertise. He was self-taught. I mean, he was kind of like a Theodore Kaczynski, you know, a Eurobomber kind of guy. And he was that that brilliant and, and skillful. He could he could forge documents. Um, like he could he could forge a document written in the hand of Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. Uh, he did he he did those documents, and and then he did documents that he forged um, about the founding of the United States. He did documents about the LDS Church bringing the church into question, which none of them were true. Uh, but, you know, the church was like, wow, look at all these documents. But there was a period of time in the church where there wasn't a lot of documentation. And now all of a sudden he gets this mother load of these documents that he's finding. Well, of course, he wasn't finding them. He was creating them. And wow. once he was arrested for it and he knew there's no way out, he said, OK, I'll confess no death penalty. And I'll tell you exactly how I did everything. Absolutely stunning how he created those documents to make them look like they were two, two or 300 years old. Amazing. Incredible danger. I mean, he, he could have created his own Gnostic Gospels and just changed history. Well, he, 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 he was moving in that direction. I would assume uh, so. And, it's a lot of power. You know, you know, half the documents out there are, you know, historical documents in, in the United States are forged. Uh, they're not you know, a lot of fake things out there, paintings and other documents, um, written documents. So everyone has to be really careful. So they brought in um, when when there was somebody who said, well, and, and the investigation was very thorough and they couldn't figure out because, you know, well, Hoffman's not the problem here. But then they started looking at the documents when they realized that every document he touched had cracks, small little microscopic cracks in the paint, in the ink. And none of the documents that he had not touched, that all the documents he had not touched did not have those cracks. They knew they had forgeries, even though they had no clue how he did it. And these were the top experts in the country at the time that, that finally broke the case for them. Because everybody else said, oh, these are, these are real. These are real. And, and it was uh, absolutely mind-blowing. And that's why it was so shocking to everybody. Uh, but for me, from the psychological perspective, is to, to watch him and listen to his voice and hear what he has to say, and he is totally, totally disconnected. He has no 
I mean, he's kind of happy that people are paying attention to him. He's, you know, losing his wife, his, his children. Those are, he doesn't even mention them. They're not of any consequence to him. What he cares about uh, is his legacy. He's kind of like Mae West. He doesn't care what you say about him as long as you don't misspell his name. You know, and that's the kind of guy he is. Yeah. Wow, incredible stuff. It's really amazing, uh, Dr. Hickey, because, you know, the forensic, forensic experts say he's the best they've ever seen. And I guess he even made a business out of this? He did make a business out of it. He, he, he created a, a variety of documents that challenged uh, some of the foundations of the church, of the LDS church. And of course, um, people wanted to know about these documents because, you know, they want to know well, what happened back in, the, in that area, back in the 1800s. And so um, he offered to make deals with it. And the church started buying up these documents. Um, and, and then he created one, one document that was extremely disturbing to members of the church because it really challenged members' faith in the church. And he said later, you know, I wasn't trying to get people to leave the church. I just want to sell documents. And of course, the church was willing to buy these documents. So he had a business, a couple of business partners, um, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was going well. The whole business was, was booming, and he'd travel across the United States, he'd travel overseas, and he'd get more documents. Uh, and as he, all the time, he was, he was forging these documents. It was amazing, his handwriting. He could, he could look at a document and then replicate that document or, or the handwriting of that document. Um, where it was exactly the same. It, it was absolutely amazing how we could do it. I had no ton of digital dexterity whatsoever. This guy was phenomenal um, and all self-taught. But eventually, over time, um, there was some suspicions, uh, not about documents, but just the fact he could find so many. I mean, no one could find these documents. All of a sudden, he was just, this man shows up with all these documents, and he's finding more and more of them. And so um, they started doing a little bit of investigating. He had to create a distraction from himself. And, and they weren't necessarily looking directly at him, but they were kind of curious about these documents. So he ended up um, making some bombs. He decided he needed to kill somebody. He didn't know who was going to kill at all. He just knew that in order to make sure no one looked at him, uh, he, he built these, these pipe bombs, very, very powerful pipe bombs. And the night before he actually did the killings, he still wasn't sure he was, who he was going to kill. But he ended up the next day taking the bombs that day and putting one bomb uh, in one of his, um, Steve Christensen, one of his business associates. Um, and when that bomb went out, when he picked it up outside his office, it blew up and just killed him on the spot. Uh, he put another bomb in another former business associate's mailbox. Unfortunately, his wife came out and opened the mailbox and killed her instantly. Um, and so, you know, to have one bomb go off in the city, but eh, it's one thing, but having two bombs go off, you know, you got someone who is really on, on the loose and very, very dangerous. So, of course, then um, Hoffman thought this thing through some more. And so, okay, I'm going to make sure no one ever suspects me of anything. So he built a bomb and he called it a suicide attempt later on. But he put the bomb in the back of his car. He sat in the front seat of the car downtown Salt Lake, and the bomb went off. And people thought, thought it went off accidentally. It, it might have gone off accidentally. I, I do think that it went off intentionally, but the way it was placed, it blew the, the back of the car up and blew it out. He was 
injured. You know, his leg was injured in the car um, explosion, um, but he survived quite quickly. He wasn't wasn't like he was in the hospital for months or anything. And I I think that this was also part of the distraction because who's going to look at Mark Hoffman when he was also a victim? Okay, so it was it was really cunning that way. Uh, the fact that he could create that kind of distraction, and uh, but so along this line though, they, 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 the investigators and they had some really good investigators. Um, they, they called they they brought in some experts who were not affiliated in any way. They're document examiners in any way with with the church uh, or with Salt Lake or with member because they need complete neutrality, and they brought in these incredible, really really good document examiners, and they looked at these documents. And they, you know, said, "Yeah, they look real," um, but then, but they said, "But there might be something." So they they did a deeper dive in the analysis, uh, optical, and look at the microscopic evidence within the document itself. And that's when they began to see some variation between the ones he actually had his hands on and the ones he'd never touched before. And once they did that, then they knew they had the right. They, they knew they had a forgery, although the most incredible forgery they've ever seen before in in the United States. So uh, as a result of that, they brought him in and they did this interrogation. Uh, he finally owns up to it. And so from there, of course, there was a nego negotiation. Uh, and if you don't, and if, if you do own up to everything, we'll make you a deal. And the deal was no death penalty. And we will end up, uh, of course, you'll tell us exactly how you did them and uh, did, did the forgeries and how you did the whole thing. And, and it was amazing how he just was very forthcoming. Uh, he, there was no emotionality in his voice. He just explained it like like common day, like I'm going out to have dinner. And, and, uh, and I think he was quite proud of himself, the fact that he was able to deceive the FBI you know, and, and, at the time. I mean, his behavior, his product, what he was able to accomplish helped really change the face of the, the investigations for law enforcement, for the FBI, how they did their analysis. Um, they realized, you know, we were good. We didn't realize that somebody was better than we were. So it was really impressive. You know, the, the, the positive things that came out of that, of course, you know, their children, of course, Hoffman's children were, were left without a father. Um, they didn't realize they were always left without a father. And his wife eventually divorced him. And, uh, you know, she to this day you know, shakes her head in disbelief because she was conned along with everybody else. That brings up a, lot of, a couple of questions for me. Um, a lot of people always wonder, can a psychopath actually get married? Well, that's a great question because most psychopaths, well, you don't see psychopaths like join the military because they're, they have to be, they're, they're told what to do constantly. Psychopaths like to be in control. Well, you know, in the, in the, getting married is one thing where as long as you can control the relationship. I mean, Ted Bundy wasn't married, but he had a girlfriend, not a girlfriend in normal sense. He controlled the relationship, just like we see with Hoffman. She never saw it coming. Uh, he had his own office in the house, in his, in his home. She was never allowed to go in that room. Now, what helped a man tell his wife he can't go in, in a room in the house? I mean, any, any normal woman would say, well, wait a minute, of course I can. It's my house too. But she obeyed him. She well, I can't disturb my husband. He's busy working. So she, she bought into that thinking, um, part of it was, you know, a little bit of cultural norm that, you know, uh, men are, you know, superior in some way. And we, and he's the breadwinner. And so 
I don't want to disturb him. I'll let him have a space. I mean, today, whether you're in the Mormon church or you're in the Catholic church or whatever church it be, women are equal to men and they should be able to go what they want in the house. But in those days, I think there was a little more subservience, if you will. And I, I think, because you know, she was, certainly wasn't involved. She had no idea what was happening. He even used her one day uh, when, when he was first starting his, his, his document forgeries, um, he put one on the table for her in a, in a Bible. And so she came home and it was just happened. But he made it obvious that so she would find it. And during the, the discovery of this document, this discovery, if you will, on this document, he's, and she was looking at, he said, well, you, you, you know, of course, that I did this. This is just a forgery. And she looked at, no, no. He said, oh, I'm just kidding. No, it's, it's real. It was, it was a forgery. He was just seeing if she could see anything in it. And he also wanted to get her reaction because everything he did was about measuring the environment around him so he could manipulate and control the environment. So was Mark Hoffman a true psychopath? Um, well, let's just look, look at this. Um, when he went to prison, five years to life, he came up for a parole hearing. He was denied. What did he do? He went to some people, some other inmates and made a deal to have men, people on the outside do a hit on some of the parole board members to kill them. Okay, so <laughs> to give you, yeah, so, to give you a kind of an idea. And if you meet, you know, Mark Hoffman uh, doesn't look like an intimidating kind of guy at all. I mean, he's, he's pretty bland looking kind of guy, but the darks, he has a true dark side to him that he's able to use to manipulate and control people. And nobody saw it coming because he came across as a, as a very nice person, uh, for sort of nondescript kind of guy. You'd never notice him on the street. So getting back to your original question, can they marry? Uh, sometimes to, to their purpose, uh, if they have the purpose in mind, uh, and this fits their narrative and can make them blend in, yes, they can. Hmm. Well, I guess it's safe to say, as you mentioned right now, he is a psychopath, but of course we can't no, for sure, because we've never done, he hasn't done the PCL, right? Right. So we, he's never, he's never, to my knowledge, had an examination, uh, an evaluation to see if he's a true psychopath. You know, we often use the PCLR um, and so on, and that's not been done. But given what we know about him, we know he's going to be very psychopathic and probably very high in the PCLR. So he's not a true psychopath. He's very close to being the one. Um, and he has some characteristics that, would pull that score down some because you know he was married and uh, and he didn't have a long history of criminal behavior. There's some things he didn't have, uh, but could we say he's sociopathic? Abs absolutely. Um, you know what, what he's done is very antisocial, and yet he blended in. So it, it, it's complicated. Yes. What do you think? I know they did. They did they're divvying it up now because now there's talk a lot about primary and secondary psychopathy. Right, you focus more on one particular set of traits, will make it primary, and then the other secondary traits. Does he yes. fall into any of those? Well, yes. Yeah. So he, here's where the confusion lies, uh, because originally, uh, when the PCLR was created, they talked about psychopaths or not being a psychopath. They didn't really talk about sociopaths. It kind of that wasn't part of the issue. To me, once we start to look at psychopathy, you have to do it on a spectrum. It's not, a it's not a dichotomy, it's a spectrum. And so below the true, you know, the 30 score for being a true psychopath, you're gonna have sociopaths who may have attachments, 
to people, um, but they still are predators. Like Jeffrey Dahmer was a predator, but he loved his mom. Um, he loved his victims. I mean, loved them in a, in a very dark way, but he had attachment to his victims. So Dahmer scores a 23 on, on the scale. He's a sociopath. Um, did he feel bad for what he did? Absolutely. And he even said, my life was pathetic. And, uh, you know, he, yeah, he, felt, he felt very badly about it, but he still did it. So he's still a predator and he still manipulated people, still calling them to come, to come to his apartment. So when you look at that kind of thing, he, he, he is definitely a predator, but he's not a true psychopath. True psychopaths have their void of conscience. And whereas Mark Hoffman, I don't see any conscience in him at all. Uh, he's, to him, it was about, look at me, look what I've accomplished. Uh, he never took into account his victims, the victim of suffering. He never took into account his wife, his children, his, his nothing. The fact that he did that, he felt powerful. And, and that was important to him uh, in, a very, in, in a very dark way. So, uh, again, it, it depends upon the scale. You can still be a predator and be a sociopath, absolutely. Most people are, are not there. Most people are, you know, if they commit crimes, you know, an, an occasional criminal. Um, most people like, like you and me, hopefully we're down in like the scale of maybe four, between four and eight. Um, we would hope that we'd be down there. I took um, the PCL before. Yeah, I was around a six or a seven. Yeah, well, six or seven. <laughs> yeah. Something yeah. like that. But anyway, so it's, um, again, uh, we, we'll probably end up doing uh, some evaluation on him at some point. Um, based upon, and, and by the way, how we do it, of course, it's not like we go interview, I mean, it'd be nice to interview him, but we can gather a lot of information because we have a lot of, we have him on video, we have him on audio, we have a lot of his, about his history. So we can spend a few months and we can really do a deep dive uh, as a group of, of experts and come together and look at our scores and then uh, agree, go through that process. Uh, and eventually, of course, we can come up with a pretty good, pretty good estimate of where he's going to be on that scale. Um, yeah, and a lot of his behaviors are, are already filling in a lot yeah. of the answers for yeah. you. <laughs> even though, even though he wasn't officially uh, got caught, he was doing things. Now we know uh, that he he hid all these things and uh, hiding in plain sight. This, yeah, hiding in plain sight. Yeah, it's fascinating because we have so many different psychopaths, and there's just so much material here. Uh, folks, again, if you like our show, make sure to hit that like button. Comment down below if you have any questions regarding this case or anything else. Dr. Hickey, always a pleasure, my friend. Yes, it's been, it's been a real pleasure. We'll have to talk sometime about a psychopath, someone who was very psychopathic. I interviewed face-to-face, -face, not in a prison. And it was a, it was a serial. Um, he, he would marry women and then travel around the country. I mean, he'd just walk away from them. He wouldn't divorce them. He'd drain them all their finances, then move on just to another another woman. Oh wow! And I met him on, on wife number five, and that's when I cornered him, and it was quite an interview with him because he didn't know I was coming <laughs> after him, and I I, got, I went to his home, and it was quite something. We'll have to talk about it some other time. Yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> too much stuff, folks. Again. Make sure you hit that like button. Hey, if you want to support our podcast or show, make sure you hit that share and subscribe. And check out the playlist. And every Sunday, we're also going to do a sizzle reel. It'll be popping out Sunday mornings. Should be kind of an exact time, but you'll be able to see the sizzle reel in the upcoming shows of the week. Take care, everyone. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.